0: Thanks everybody for being here our guest today was introduced to me by sharon Tewksbury bloom a fizzle member and in my first call with tiffany she told me that fizzle might qualify for potentially tens of thousands in tax credits for software that we've already developed so obviously this pique my interest. (laughs) Uh, Money on the table that we may not have claimed, but it's still available because of this R&D tax credit that we're going to be talking about today. Our guest today is Tiffany Bisconner, and she is a CPA with over 20 years of accounting and tax experience. Tiffany has worked with one of the top 10 certified public accounting firms and is currently the director of Asena Consulting. She combines her private industry and public accounting experience, and she works with CPA firms and direct with business owners like me and leadership teams in multiple industries at all levels of growth to help educate and identify opportunities for the utilization of tax credits for an infusion of cash flow. Tiffany, thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh my goodness. Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: I'm excited about this as well. Today, we're going to do a Q&A style interview. I have a whole lot of questions lined up. We may also get some live questions from Fizzle members later in the session. But before we get started, I wanted to mention a little bit more about your background because the CPA stuff is obviously going to be interesting to us today. But as I was reading your bio, I saw that you're also CPA based in Phoenix, but you're a three-time Ironman participant and a two-time Boston Marathoner. Yeah. Apparently I don't relax well. (laughs) No, I guess not. On top of that, I also saw that you are an international dance performer instructor, a published author, and a 200-hour certified yoga instructor. (laughs)
1: Like I said, sleep is for the weary, I
0: guess. I don't know. That is amazing. I love that. I can tell from our first call, you've got tons of energy. This is a very complicated part of the tax code for business owners, but I imagine as an accountant, it is as well. And I know it's one of these things that people specialize in. And I don't know if small business owners understand that public accounting really ends up at the higher levels being broken down into specialties because in order to really understand something like this and to be efficient at it, you've got to like dedicate a good chunk of your career to it. When did you start working on R&D tax credits specifically? And was this something that you like dreamed of as a kid, like growing
1: up to become good at? I think I dreamed of as a kid being everything I could possibly be in the world. Um, But really, uh, it's a great question because when I was in private industry running businesses, building, running, driving from a business perspective, understanding the kind of gap in communication that can sometimes happen between what your growth and what you want your growth to be and then the tools available to help you to get there, just understanding that there's kind of that division. And kind of to touch on your point about the CPA world and kind of the specialty areas, a lot of times I'll make the metaphor direct correlation between like the medical model where the body of information is so vast that a lot of times there is a necessity to have a specialty field in order to dive into the complexities of that particular area in order to best serve the business owners and also as a professional service arena to best serve each other. So I offer support both obviously to my field as a CPA, but also directly to the business owners, because at the end of the day, they are who we are all serving. True. And I know
0: from working in a startup that both on the legal side with lawyers and on the accounting side, you end up with a team of people really there to help you. But as an individual business owner, it can be hard to know who to turn to. And so I was really glad that Sharon Fizzle member introduced us. It was great. And this was the kind of thing that even though I've been an entrepreneur, I've been working in startups for, I don't know, over 15 years I was not aware of this. And and I'm guessing that maybe in my first startup, we just had someone who kind of dealt with this, (laughs) someone on our accounting team that, that dealt with this, but I was essentially the chief operating officer and I still wasn't aware of it. So I'm really excited to share this with people and get the word out, even for folks who might not necessarily be able to take advantage of it right now. So Tiffany, first, let's start off, if you don't mind, just explain a little bit about what a tax credit is, because I I think a lot of people don't know what that means. So how does a tax credit differ from like the normal things when you're doing your taxes and deducting things and whatnot as a business owner?
1: That's a great starting point because I think the value of a tax credit is best explained when you create that comparison. Because a lot of times I'll go into a conversation and just like you said, we're going backwards. We're looking at money that was already spent, already expensed already considered a deduction for tax purposes. So when you think about a deduction, really what you're doing is you're taking your income figure or your gross receipts, and you're reducing that by whatever your expenses are to come down to what your taxable income is going to be. From that position, then you have tax. So what a credit does is instead of just reducing the taxable income figure, you're actually reducing the bottom line tax. So if you owe the government 10 grand, you get a 10 grand credit you wipe out that 10 grand of tax basically, as opposed to just kind of reducing that bottom line that then gets hit with your effective tax rate.
0: So dollar for dollar a tax credit is worth a lot more than a tax deduction.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That is kind of the differentiator. And that's why the kind of that dollar for dollar reduction is so critical because really that is the amount of cash that you're being able to stop going out the door and or recoup when you go backwards.
0: And so just in our case, in Fizzle's case, if let's say we're talking about at the end of the day, a $10,000 tax credit, that might've required us, depending on tax bracket, like $30,000 of income or something that that would be offsetting, which is really tremendous. So I encourage people to look into this, even if the numbers don't seem huge compared to deductions that you're used to, they actually end up putting a lot of money back in your pocket because whatever the amount of that credit is, it's going right back in either your pocket if you're running a pass-through entity or back into the corporation's pocket if it's a a C-corp. So a tax credit, very valuable. Now the R&D tax, tax credit specifically. Can you explain to us kind of the origins of this and what it's meant to do?
1: Yeah. Typically how I explain things is I try not to tax code geek out too much. So I like it to be accessible and to understand the reasons behind the tax credit, because another thing that will commonly happen is whenever anybody hears that the government's going to give them money, it's always kind of an eyebrow raise, right? Because that's not our association (laughs) with what happens in business. We make more money, they take more money is kind of like the thought process. So if we think about where this started at a federal level, it was you know, almost 40 years ago. So at that point where the federal program for the R&D tax credits came into play, it was really at a point where they wanted to incentivize US-based labor. They wanted to incentivize US-based businesses instead of outsourcing to actually increase our economy and to be able to compete at a global level. So the idea was to try to keep money on our soil being repurposed to employees that were based here. And so when we think about the credit, really the driver is that incentive. The other thing is in the realm of innovation, the idea is if we can keep our business owners doing things that will keep us moving forward from an innovation standpoint, then from a global standpoint, we're also competing. So when you talk about high tech or manufacturing, or even just in a general small business, the things that you're doing to solve problems on a daily basis, that really is what the credit is here to incentivize using technical skill, putting them to play, advancing something in the ways that you do in your business, likely every day. So from that perspective, obviously 40 years is a long trajectory. A bunch of case law has been put into place, but the actual tax credit itself at a federal level didn't become permanent until the PATH Act of 2015. So that's relatively recent for that long trajectory. So at the beginning of time, this was something that was really focused on by big business. At the initiation of the credit, it was more focused on doing something that nobody else in the world was doing. It was really focused on high, high levels of innovation and through the kind of swing back and forth of case law and just understanding what really the intentions of the credit We're at this point, we're at a a really sweet spot where it really does support small business, even startup businesses. And because it's now permanent, it's not something that's going to go away or sunset And the next year, it makes more sense to use this as a proactive tool. So kind of to go back to your initial point too, of this is something that is either going to go backwards in time and recoup money that you've already spent, or you use this as a proactive tool to stop money from going out in the first place. So if you know that you're doing qualified work and we figure out a way to be able to quantify that so you can reduce payments, you want to try to use it as a tool within your strategy toolbox as you move forward as a business owner.
0: And this is really a form of the government investing in your business in a way, because they're basically making a bet. They're saying, you know, if we help these small businesses out with innovation, it likely means they're going to grow in the future and that will increase our tax base. And it's good for the economy in general, which is great. And I should say for people listening to this, I know that we have folks in other countries, we're not all just US based. So it's likely that other countries have measures like this as well. I don't know if you have an idea of the international landscape, like For example, Canada or Britain or Australia, do they have R&D tax credits as well?
1: Yeah. And one of my cruxes, honestly, is when you look at it globally, some of the international credits are actually better. (laughs) than what we're able to offer here. So the bills that are coming through to Congress now and the continuous focus on R&D just in general, again, global marketplace, competition, critical. It's a self-serving credit for the government. It's a self-serving credit for any country that puts this into place because they want to be able to retain that type of innovation on their soil. So like you said, it's a feeding loop. So even though it is gonna benefit you, I do kind of circle it back. It is self-serving for our economy, for our country in general. But yeah, there's definitely different credits. A lot of them are from a percentage basis. Tax structures are different in different countries, obviously, but they do exist. Another thing I would kind of point out is when you look at the R&D credit Uh, depending on where that work is happening is kind of where that credit is generated. So even if you're a business owner that has some of your resources outsourced, but you also do some of that development work and or concept development work on US soil, that is bifurcated. So we focus on what happens here. It doesn't preclude you from being able to take the credit because maybe you have a developer that's overseas. But the idea is if you understand what the return is, that just helps to manage cash flow. It helps to manage decisions on where to put capital resources. If you hire full time engineer here and you know what that return looks like. It just it helps to make informed decisions on where you're putting your capital, basically.
0: Yeah, and, and this came up in our case, because when I was talking with Tiffany about Fizzle's example for software that we've developed both internally for Fizzle, as well as Palapa, which is a community platform that we've built, we definitely had resources onshore working on that people are part of the core Fizzle team, but we also had hired someone in Lithuania. And I didn't realize that this credit existed, or that it might come into play that because that person was offshore, they wouldn't necessarily or the money that we spent on those resources wouldn't qualify for this tax credit, but it definitely would make me think twice about it, where I was hiring people in the future as part of that cost-benefit analysis. So I'm glad you brought that up. So anyone listening internationally just realize that a lot of times when laws are structured in other countries, they are looking at each other's implementations. And so there's probably a lot of similarities between what we're going to talk about today for US-based companies to what happens overseas. So back to the tax credit specifically for R&D, what kinds of activities qualify? What is R&D and what for people listening to this, running their businesses, what sorts of things that they're doing might qualify?
1: Okay. And I absolutely adore that you said activities because typically what happens (laughs) is people ask about industries because they think it's an industry specific credit. So I already did a little bit of what I'm here to do, which is to make sure that it's clear that it is actually an activities-based credit. So internally, like the starting place for us, again, not to bore you with the code, but IRS has what they consider a four-part test. So the, the quick and dirty kind of temperature check on, are you doing something kind of internally that would count towards the credit really is based on the activities. Activities in the projects. It doesn't matter which industry or what industry you're in because a lot of times, and especially now, in order to stay relevant as a business to compete in a global marketplace, to make sure that you're continuously innovating or solving problems that people care about, you're going to face things within your business that you need to pivot on, that you need to make better, that you need to make more efficient, that you're trying to figure out a better quality. If you're building products, you get feedback from the marketplace. You get feedback from clients that say, Hey, it's great that you did this, but we're really looking for this going back to the drawing board and figuring out how to add that stuff in is that continual loop of making things better. So the intersection point of what problem are we trying to solve and what technical skill do we need to solve it? And what kind of process did we basically have to go through in order to get from point A to point B is kind of a very simple way of looking at R&D. But at the base root level, I'm asking you, you know, internally, are you doing certain activities that are either new or improved to you in order to increase the capability, functionality, the dirt the efficiency of a product, a process, a formula, a technique, an invention, a software. It's basically those things that will be kind of the starting points. So when you think about business, business, everything you do in business is a process, a product or, or some kind of deliverable, right? So then we want to get a little bit more micro. It's okay. So if you're doing those things, then at the onset of trying to figure out what you're doing next, what were your technical uncertainties? What are the things that you're asking yourself that you need to solve for? It's kind of that root of the scientific method in general, but we don't think about it like that when we're building business. We think we have a problem here. We need to fix it. We're going to put all hands on deck. We're going to build this new thing. And it's kind of just in the rush of building business. You're not going to have this parameter or this kind of grounding point of this is R&D. This is just what you do. So the extraction conversations are really around that. What are you doing to make things better? What were your biggest challenges that you faced? And then from that point, I really extract and guide a conversation into R&D without it being something that is kind of scarier or indigestible as a business owner.
0: Right. I noticed that happening, you guiding the conversation when we had our first conversation, because this is complex. And I feel like as an individual business owner, it's a lot to expect that we're running our businesses, we're building our products, we're doing our marketing, all that kind of stuff. And then we're supposed to know the nuances of the tax code to this level. It just doesn't work that way. So, with working with someone like you, you know how to guide that conversation and dig into. What are you doing on a day-to-day basis in your business? And what have you done that is leading to innovation, improving processes, those sorts of things that might qualify for the credit. However, to know whether or not it's worth pursuing this or, or having a conversation with someone like you, what are some examples of things that commonly qualify? So you mentioned writing software. So if it's unique or custom software, that's something that commonly qualifies?
1: Yeah, software is a huge one. It really is because one, that's part of the four-part test. Are you creating or developing a new or improved software? <laughs> um, so that's part of the low-hanging fruit. And the, another reason that's important is a lot of times businesses that are not software businesses are utilizing software in a customized way to create something proprietary in order to help clients. So kind of unfolding another layer of even just that first question of the business component test, that is really the IRS's first part of the questioning process. You know, are you creating something new or improved? approved with the intention of it being for sale or used by a customer or client or a third party. So even when you think about robust build outs on client portals, when you think about new functionality that you're trying to create from an analytics perspective, a lot of times when you talk about the software arena, there's always a systems integration, even managed service providers that provide a lot of upfront pre-sales engineering in order to create a roadmap or a technological roadmap, and then spend time coding, scripting, building communication networks between even existing products. So there is that component of customization. And obviously if you buy an off the shelf software and you don't have to do anything except to configure it, to make it work the way you want it to work, that's not going to be heavy in R&D. But if you need to add additional modules, like even well-known CRMs, a lot of people will spend all of their time building out modules that plug in. So you're having to create something customized in order to bring it back into something that most people are using. Yeah. So from that perspective, the software arena is, is huge. And I'm wondering
0: in software, just to pause for a second, does it have to be completely custom? Or let's say in order to deliver something to your customers, what you want doesn't exactly exist as an off-the-shelf package. So let's say there are three different pieces that you need to pull together, glue in a certain way that produces something unique that your competitors aren't using, but it's not completely custom. There's just a lot of custom work to make those systems talk to each other and so on.
1: Is that the kind of thing that would qualify as well? Yes. And I would say that is the kind of thing that gets missed even more. Because when you're looking at something, especially from your standpoint, right, usually when I have these conversations around this, we got this, it didn't do what we wanted to. We tried another thing. It didn't do what we wanted to. The pivot points are either, okay, so now I'm going to build this whole thing by myself because I can't figure out a way to make it work, or I'm going to have to build, I I call it a neural network, even though that's not obviously what it is. But (laughs) the systems integration, build out the APIs, figure out how to get these things to integrate with each other. And then if we kind of go further down that rabbit hole of the four-part test, it's really at the beginning, you're going to have some technical uncertainties. Will this even work with this? And how am I going to figure that out? So when when I talk about technical uncertainties, really the three components are... Do I even have the capability of doing this or what is the appropriate design in order to get this to work or what's the appropriate method? So it's usually those three things that we're kind of looking at when we ask about your questions, what questions were you asking and what were you solving for? And as long as that goes through this iterative process where You're, you know, you're trying one thing, you're trying another thing. It didn't work. You figured out, okay, if I I can't use this particular software, I need to get something else. Or if you're trying to connect software to hardware or to different components, online components or apps, or anything that requires that building point, that is the design of being able to get everything to talk to each other. And there's a high potential. It probably won't work. If it doesn't work, no big deal. Because from an R&D perspective, that actually supports that you're doing something just out of reach. It was just out of your capability, but you tried it anyways. If it does work, then we go through that process of just, you know, what did you try? What were the different things that you went through? If anybody hands you a recipe that works from point A to point B, first time, no questions, everything's good. There's not R&D because there's no iterative process. There's no process of experimentation, discovery of new information. It's it's just basically a plug and play. But every time you have those challenging moments where you feel like breaking your computer, you know, those are usually the points. <laughs>
0: That's interesting because it's almost like you're being compensated for the failures along the way, right? Or the, the little stumbling blocks. Okay. So we talked about technology, software, obviously. It doesn't really, I don't think this audience cares, but I'm sure biotech counts as well, right? If people are researching for medical purposes, we don't have a whole lot of those small startups working on those problems. So tech, software, what other kinds of things
1: qualify? You know, some outliers are things you don't think about. Breweries, wineries. Sometimes you'll also start seeing, I mean, from a product development standpoint, anybody who's trying to develop a new product, but there's also contract manufacturers, people that are developing products for other people that essentially wouldn't get rights for the product, but the process to develop something is the separate component. So you have your process aspect and you also have the product aspect, but you'll see, you know, within any industries, even professional services industries, a lot of times internally, they're trying to figure out a way to make things better. Super robust coding or uh, customization on client deliverables, uh, building out analytics. Sometimes for our marketing agencies and ad agencies, they'll do a lot of algorithm build out on the back end to figure out how to optimize client performance. So it really is kind of comes down to the science and the grit and the under the hood work that people are doing.
0: Taking care of employees has never been more important. For years, Gusto's been helping more than 100,000 small business owners run payroll, offer benefits, onboard new employees, and more. They call it the People Platform. And it doesn't just look nice. It works. Your payroll taxes are filed, deductions are calculated, and your team gets paid. You can even offer health insurance and 401ks. Get three months free after your first payroll when you go to gusto.com fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. We've talked a lot, I think, in the past about how if you're running a services business to make that business really efficient and to grow it, it really ends up being all about the processes, you know, how you can systematically deliver high standards to your clients. And that requires a lot of process tweaking, trying things out, seeing how it goes and looking at almost at it as a scientist and just evaluating it from start to finish. That's the sort of thing you're talking about would qualify in a professional services realm.
1: Yeah. And I think the things that become gray are harder to apply is when we say process too, it still has to go through that iterative process of technical questions And looking at different alternatives. Sometimes what will happen is in that process of making things better, the fourth and really the major qualifying test for that IRS four-part test is that process of experimentation has to be grounded in the hard sciences. So that does not need to mean you need to be in the industry of hard sciences. It means that as you go through that iterative process, what is the feedback loop? What technical skills are you employing in order to come up with the right answers? So a lot of times what will end up happening is that's the part that we want to make sure that. Super clear because that's going to be the part that kind of qualifies the whole picture. And so, you know, computer science is one of those. So when you talk about software, you talk about build out, you talk about those interfacing tools. It becomes a lot easier to qualify because that really is the natural process of building something from a computer science perspective. But we also talk about engineering architects. We talk about anybody employing the, the physical sciences. So you're really kind of diving into that hard science component and making sure that that also fit. Like if I'm having a conversation with my team and I want to figure out a good way to get from the AR to the AP to the end client to the invoicing. That's great for process improvement, but it still has to, how are we doing that? Are we just talking to people and getting it done? Are we creating a feedback loop where we're actually trying different tools? Did we need to develop automation and what did that look like? So those are kind of the deeper dives of getting that thing to qualify.
0: Now, are there common activities that don't qualify that people assume would for
1: some reason? Yeah. And that's a, I think when you look at just the first part of that four-part test, a lot of times you'll say process product. Oh, I do processes all day long, kind of similar to our conversation right now. So it is more of that. Then we just kind of lift up the hood a little bit more and see if it actually makes sense. Things even in the software world that to counts like a uh, bugging, debugging, reverse engineering. Sometimes they'll get a, a product, reverse engineer it, put it back together. And from the IRS codes perspective, that doesn't count. You're also, when you talk about not qualifying, there's the high level stuff of obviously anything overseas, payments that are outside of the jurisdiction of where this tax credit will reach to. And it's also another really primary and key area is, and the reason why I like to get in front of people as early as possible, even when you're at initiation stages or concept development stages is a lot of these pitfalls can be avoided if you understand the parameters. So two of the main parameters that will kick out are this concept of financial risk and substantial rights so even in the software arena a lot of times i'll deal with founders who may not be technical founders they hire a development team that's an independent contractor and they weren't clear in their contract at the end of the day who owns the rights to that development effort from an r&d perspective if there's two parties involved only one of those parties can take r&d for that specific activity and in some cases, neither can, because nothing is clear. <laughs> so from that perspective, the financial, yeah, the financial risk perspective is basically when you go in to do this, the, the government's trying to incentivize you to take risk, to build something, make things better. So they're giving you kind of a little, uh, you know, prize in order to make sure you're doing that. But if somebody's paying you for your time and material, they're paying you no matter if you succeed or not, if you're getting funded in that way. In the sense of somebody's paying for your time, the government looks at that and says, well, you're being paid for your development time. You're not taking any risk. You don't get a credit. If someone says, hey, we're going to give you either sometimes a grant or sometimes funding for an end product, or even when you're dealing with clients and and they basically hire you for an end product, but you're not going to get paid unless you deliver that end product. You're taking financial risk to get to that point where you actually deliver that thing. So a lot of times contract language can really throw a wrench in what you thought was yours. Same with the rights perspective. If it's not clear at the end of the day, who has substantial rights for the development efforts that can work against you as well.
0: It's a great general lesson for business owners, because a lot of times you assume that if you're paying for something, that means that you own the thing you're paying for, but it's not necessarily true. It really depends on what's written in the contract. And so as a business owner, if you're ever hiring Uh, contractors, employees, or a third-party development shop or whatever, you have to make sure that there's also an addendum or a separate piece to that contract that specifies who owns that intellectual property at the end of the day. And business owners don't understand this. Sometimes, you know, you hire an employer or a contractor and you just start paying them. They're working for you. You assume, hey, they developed some software. It's mine. It's not yours unless there's something in writing that says that you own the intellectual property. So this comes into play in a lot of cases, but even in the R&D tax credit. We've talked about the kinds of activities that qualify. What expenses now qualify for the credit? And how do we calculate what the credits are? So let's say again, back in the case of Fizzle, we talked through how we had several people on the team working on software, we had an offshore person and so on. But of all the things that we're working on, like what expenses qualify? Is it just salaries? Are there other things that we're paying for that would qualify for the tax credit as well?
1: This is the simple complex area, right? So (laughs) the simple part is there's really only three primary buckets of expenses that we're able to pick up. Wages, independent contractors, and supplies. Now, what those mean to you as a business is where a little bit of the complexity comes in. But just to kind of circle back on the intention of the credit is really to incentivize U.S.-based labor. So typically your wages are going to drive the credit. And this is also a discussion when you're at early stages and debating between having employees or having independent contractors. Obviously, there's the whole legal ramifications of structuring those properly just in general. But there's also the the question of, does it make more sense to pull in a full-time employee as an engineer or software developer to get a more lucrative credit off of them? or grab an infinite contractor. And so the, what ends up happening is from a wage perspective, you're looking at anybody involved in the R&D process from concept inception, which is those moments that you have the discussions within your team, your stand-up meetings, you know, your conversations as founders, a lot of times are gonna happen continually. How do we make this better? What do we need to focus on next? What's the feedback we're getting from prospects? If you're in beta, what is this kind of feedback we're getting as we're going through this? So that concept development is going to initiate it. So anybody touching a project from concept development stage, concept inception, through to initial design work, the wireframing, the building this thing out, through to you know the iterative process of trying to get it to work. And then basically, as you go through the process of trying to understand if this is going to be a viable attempt can either get to the point where you realize it isn't and toss the whole thing. And then your timeline is from concept inception to throwing this thing out, <laughs> or it's from concept inception, going through your alpha, your beta, your release. And the moment something is basically ready for commercial release, that's kind of where the R&D timeline will stop for that project. Obviously, once you stop it, a lot of times you're going to bring it back to the table add and additional functionality, and that's going to start again, but in chunks, that's what we look at. So from a wage perspective technical people, you know, your software developers, your engineers, the people that are working on the technical solutions, but also one level up of supervision and one level below of support. So when you think about the people in your organization and their roles in getting this thing across the finish line, their intersection points are going to drive a certain amount of hours or percentage of time spent on that project, which then translate into money, basically that we're able to pick up as a qualified expense that gets thrown into the R&D tax credit grinder. So anybody spending 80% or more of their time, if you have a full-time developer, if you're trying to get something off the ground, that 80% mark is kind of the rest is considered de minimis. And that 100% of that person's wage would be able to get picked up into the calculation if that were the case. The only difference between the wages, really, and independent contractors, a couple things, obviously, the contractual rights, as we just talked about, but for independent contractors, again, the, the government is trying to get you to do something specific, which is hire people in the US. <laughs> so they actually, if you have qualified expenses in the independent contractor realm, we're only able to pick up 65% of what's qualified. So if you have a hundred grand paid towards an independent contractor, we can only pick up 65 grand if that's qualified as where an employee being paid hundred grand that is hundred percent qualified, we'll be able to pick up the full hundred grand. So that's kind of the difference there. And then what's the multiplier
0: or the percentage or whatever of your expenses that end up being credited back?
1: Yeah. So this is where, depending on the tax year, depending on the tax circumstances, and also depending on where you're located from a state perspective, because I'm talking about the federal program right now, which is no matter where you are, that this is something that is going to be accessible to you within the U S from a state perspective, depending on where you are, this can dramatically compound benefit so from a federal perspective there the percentages that you'll read about are higher but when i talk about net benefit you're looking at around eight percent return on qualified cost as your net benefit so that dollar for dollar reduction the actual credit amount will be higher but just depending on the year and how that is treated as it runs through your tax return It'll basically boil down to that net benefit. When you talk about state level benefits, like for example, I'm in Arizona. Arizona is one of the better states in the nation to incentivize businesses. So that 8% turns into 20%. So, and again, uh, California, Utah, there's a bunch of states that have decent credits. A lot of them have something. Over 30 states will have something. So that's another thing to look at.
0: I mean, that's amazing. So, you know, just imagine for people, you know, business owners listening to this, you pay someone, yourself, whatever a hundred thousand dollars a year, you're working 80% of your time or more on a project. And then in some States you're saying 20% of that could be credited back to you on your taxes. That's a huge benefit. And I can imagine that in big companies, you know, big startups, like you end up talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of credits over a period of years this is a one of the more significant benefits i've ever heard of for businesses now we've talked a little bit about past versus future and this is something that i was kind of blown away by but in our conversation you said there was a look back period where we could go and revise tax returns that had already been filed 3 or 4 years ago i think was the something like that so for people who have already invested and you know built some software some custom processes whatever it may be worth having a conversation with someone to say hey did any of this qualify and you might end up getting you know thousands of dollars back in your pocket now what about companies that are not paying taxes yet what if you're a startup and you're not even paying yourself a salary yet you're just getting going but you're going to be spending a bunch of your time on r&d
1: Yeah. So you do have my brain exploding with a bunch of things that I'm super passionate about when it comes to like, (laughs) so really quickly, because I want to make sure I touch on the the look back period. So when we talk about look back, what you're saying is basically we can go back in time amend returns and kind of pull forward benefit. So from a statute of limitation standpoint, this is part of the reason why I do this is because there's a clock ticking, right? So the sooner you get this information, the sooner you can figure out if there's benefit for you in the past. If you've paid taxes, we can go back three years basically from those taxable years to generate refunds. We can go back further if you were in losses and generate off of your expenses to carry those forward in order to offset current year or after that year taxes. But when we talk about hard statute of limitations to actually recoup taxes paid, it's going to be that three-year look back on the federal side from when you filed. And then on the state, you'll have additional you know, like here in Arizona, we got four years to go back. So what ends up happening and the reason why these conversations are good to have early is basically if you're fully bootstrapping and you have no expenses, there's nothing going out and you have no revenue. There's not a lot to do because we actually can't generate a credit off of nothing, but there's the moment you get either funding or if you self-fund, or if you get to the point where you have to hire somebody or pay somebody something to help you in that moment that becomes an opportunity to figure out how to plan better moving forward. Even as a single founder, if you're going through this process of, as a technical founder, building something, a lot of times the weight of this is going to be on you. And uh, conversations I have with founders a lot, especially as they start getting trickle in funding, they get some equity or they get something that allows them to pay themselves. We have a conversation of, Does it make sense to pay yourself? Does it make sense to hire someone else? And what does that return look like if you do that? Because even from an investment standpoint, if you're looking at getting funding, this is like a non-dilutive way to get more capital. So it is those type of conversations. And then what will happen sometimes, even as a sole proprietor, you're the only person, you have some money, you have a Schedule C business, that actual income figure on your Schedule C is going to be considered your wage. So what we do is we figure out, okay, so how much time did you spend? What is that number? number look like? Is there a way to get a tax credit now? And then kind of to go into this idea of the moment you have payroll, even if you're pre-revenue, even if you're at a place where you're not generating taxable income and you're under 5 million in sales uh, or gross receipts basically, and you haven't had gross receipts prior to five years ago. There's another tax play that happened within the PATH Act of 2015 that allows businesses that are pre-revenue startup businesses that are spending money on development work to immediately utilize a tax credit through an election to use it against payroll taxes instead of income taxes. So this is, this is separate. And I I like to make that really clear because sometimes people will walk away with this and be like, well, once I get to a certain point, I can't use the credit anymore. The general federal credit is a perpetual credit. You use it always use it for the rest of your business's life. As long as you're doing qualified work, this election is separate And it's afforded to, again, businesses that are spending money to do something to get off the ground. And this is really something that they can use benefit for right away. The critical points are, this is something that you cannot amend for. It has to be on an original return. But say you have 200 grand in payroll because you were paying a bunch of developers to get something done, or you have payroll just in general, and you even paid a developer who is a 1099. That 1099 will generate a tax credit that you can use even against your administrative payroll. So the payroll itself doesn't have to be qualified in order to use the payroll tax offset, but you, you definitely are going to want to try to figure out if it makes this play makes sense to you because it's time sensitive. The moment you file, whatever quarter you file in that next quarter, you're able to offset your payroll taxes right away at the end of that quarter when you file your 941.
0: I have a question from someone in the Fizzle audience. And this question comes from Julia Tunstall, who is a longtime Fizzle member from way back. Julia, you said you had a question for Tiffany about documentation.
2: Yes. As it happens this week, I was looking into the R&D tax credit for our team. And it's just, it seems like I can figure out how to do it, but how in the heck do you keep track of it, right? How do you keep track of, the projects and how each project qualifies for the four-part rule? Does every activity have to meet one of those four parts or is it okay if the project as a whole meets it? I'm realizing that this is multiple questions. You know, if I'm asking somebody on my team to do what's necessary to get this credit because I want their wages to be eligible, how does this not become an administrative quagmire, right?
1: Well, it's great to see you. And yeah, this is kind of like the way that I are, you know, we kind of go against this is two, two ways. One, everything that happened in the past is what it is, right? So we can't go back and construct things in a way that didn't exist then, but kind of going through this process helps to create a more customized way for each organization to figure out how to track it moving forward. So the couple things that I'll point to is one, within the tax code, we are allowed to use estimates of people's time in order to support qualified activities. So initially what will happen is we'll get a very detailed narrative or talk through the projects with you to make sure that we have a good handle on what's qualified. Because as long as it's qualified, the case law that supports this is basically if there's a qualified activity, if there's a qualified project, somebody had to do it. So if you don't have anal time tracking, then is it reasonable that this much time was taken in order to come up with this solution? So every organization is a little bit different. The time tracking conversation is sensitive. The way that I like to approach it typically is to get team buy-in is really we're doing this together so that we can keep doing things like this together. And it, it really kind of changes the paradigm of making it a little bit more exciting because initially when I'll have these conversations, I mean, and I'm talking to highly technical people, I'm talking to engineers. You know, when you ask somebody, how long did it take you to figure this out? That can create a little bit of an ego rub, right? Because it's kind of like, well, I figured this out. and, And I was like, no, let's, let's discuss the reasons why I'm asking. So the whole thought process you take for granted in order to come through a solution is actually something that's going to drive benefit for the company as a whole. It's like the time that you spend kind of going back and forth on the things that didn't work are actually things that we're celebrating right now because that got us to an end product, but it also shows us that the people on our team are bright and basically take for granted their own brilliance, right? So kind of having those conversations or framing in that way sometimes helps. And then from a structure standpoint, at least from my perspective, what we do when we go through the studies is this is what's qualified. This is where we're getting it. Let's talk through activities. Let's make sure everybody knows what doesn't count. It is kind of on a project basis. There's going to be some activities that may not count some that will, but the de minimis number is basically what we look at. So if you know that that 80% rule, even from a project perspective, as long as that kind of focal point is coming up with that new solution, going through the iterative process, the concept development, all of that stuff. So there's multiple ways to do it. I usually like to have direct conversations, like how are you tracking time already? Do you have a project management software? What are you using in order to make sure that you're tracking your development sprints? And then from that point forward, we can kind of construct a way that's like beneficial for you as an organization, because you don't want to be micromanaging time. You want to make sure you're encapsulating the things that you need to. And then from a narrative standpoint, just having notes so that that can be something that is talked about later. We have technical writers on our staff specifically for that reason, because we want to be able to go in and just have a conversation, pull out what's necessary, and then document that so it reaches the IRS standards as far as the documentation requirements. Yeah. So it shouldn't be something you're struggling with alone.
2: I started a spreadsheet on my own to try to track my own time. and And in our context, it's, True product development. This is a juicer. It's not going to work out. So that makes that criteria, but I have lots of them going on. I'm probably working on seven or eight different products in our pipeline right now. Do I have to track like, well, I answered an email for this one. So that's five minutes. I'm like, it just got kind of crazy right off the bat. Do I need to track how much time for each product?
1: The worst person is you because, <laughs> because I mean, in a good way. But when I talk to founders, it's like what, you work eighty hours a week. or eighty hours a day. I mean, it's like you're constantly thinking about this stuff. So again, it's just what can we support, you know? And if it makes sense to kind of have a running log of just the the projects you were working on and understanding and kind of like as micro as possible. I mean, it's always better to have. In the event of an audit, it's always better to have really detailed information. But that really is going to start from a project level basis again. So if you're working on seven products at the same time, going through that iterative process of trying to figure out if this is going to work or not work, that's going to be something that is likely absorbing a lot of your time, especially when you're going out to market because you need to get something that works. So initially that's going to be the primary focus. When you get to a point where you have 10 finished products and you're more focused on the business development side, or you're more focused on You know, just trying to get these products to market. It's a different shift as far as what your percentage of time spent in this arena is, right? Those kind of things shift over time. But I would say, you know, creating a log, it's almost like a diary log of your brain dumps, is nice from a qualitative standpoint. The discussions you have with your team, obviously, this is going to play into it. It's virtually impossible to track every minute of your day, especially you. Like I said, anybody who's on the technical team or involved in the process, just making sure it's captured in some way. And then we can kind of dive in and just figure out, is there a better way to do this? Because from your perspective too, even I didn't get there yet from the expense standpoint, but obviously you have your people, but your prototyping supplies, like as you go through that process of just trying to figure out what am I using? What do I need? You know, how many iterations did I go through of this thing to get it to work or not work? And what did we learn from it? And what are we going back with? So hopefully that helped a little bit, but yeah, it's both the qualitative and the quantitative. That's what makes it challenging. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Julia, so much for the question. Nice to see you. Okay, we have just about eight minutes left here with Tiffany. And so I want to ask three final questions. The first one is, are there specific business structures that qualify or do not, like C Corp, S Corp, LLC, partnership, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, those would all qualify at a federal level. The utilization of the tax credits differ depending on how you're structured and how we can drive credits. But from a federal perspective, the flow through entities, the C-Corps, even your Schedule Cs, like I said, your sole props that run through your personal returns, there's ways to generate credits there. It would just be generation of credits, then how do you use them? From a state level, that changes. So that's one of the bigger changes when you talk about states, because some states states only allow C corp, some states will allow different flow through entities. So that will be a little bit more complex.
0: Next is: Is there any reason not to apply for these credits? Are there downsides to it? Does this open you up to scrutiny from the IRS? Does this complicate your taxes to some like unfathomable degree? Like, are there any reasons that you? don't apply for some businesses.
1: So I would say just make sure you go through the process of fully qualifying what you do. Those are going to be the legs that you stand on. Anytime you open up a prior year tax return, just in general, when you go back into amend, it creates a little bit more risk because typically when you go back and amend a human looks at it, the camp IRS and will sometimes not understand things or have questions that they'll want to ask. So there's a little bit higher of an audit risk when you go back and amend. Also, just depending on what your expenses are. And the mix, you know, if you're every year taking hundred percent of everything that your entire expense base, there might be something odd there. But if you are truly an R and D firm or in that build, a lot of times it is very close to that. So it really is just kind of work with a professional, make sure you understand the internally, what counts, what doesn't count, make sure you can support the qualified activity standpoint. And really from my perspective, I'm more worried about the people not claiming it that deserve to claim it. Because really, you're spending money on something that doesn't just benefit you, it benefits the people around you, it benefits our economy. And that's the point of the credit. It's Like I said, it's self-serving. But don't not look into it because of that risk factor, because you could be spending a lot more money than you need to. And there's stuff that's due to you, in my opinion. And finally, just
0: the mechanics of actually getting this work done. Is there any scenario where a business owner can do this on their own?
1: It is possible. I would still highly recommend just having a conversation, understanding how to set this up and structure it. Also the kind of the way that we engage in adding in audit defense adds a lot of peace of mind aspects of it because if something comes back and gets questioned, just understanding how to stand up. The other reason I wouldn't recommend doing it on your own is mostly because of that optimization part. So if we understand the black and the white of the tax code and then all the gray area, The idea is that you're making decisions based on making sure that you're optimizing the credits. Sometimes when business owners will do it on their own, they'll take a really conservative estimate because they just want to fly under the radar. They want to make sure they get a little bit, but likely they probably are owed a lot more just based on the qualified activities. So just figuring out that sweet spot. And then just from my perspective too, I spend a lot of time mentoring early stage startups, having these conversations, making sure that people are educated, specific to the credits in their business so that it's actually grounded in what you're doing. So all of the high level stuff is great, but if I can actually have a conversation and let you know within your business specifically, these are the things that I would look out for. It kind of helps to create that framework moving forward to continuously look at ways to optimize your spend. So it becomes like, again, a strategy conversation moving forward. When you engage a professional, are you looking at a minimum sort
0: of amount of credits that makes sense to be able to hire a professional? Is this a scenario where someone would be paying hourly for your expertise, or there's like a percentage of the credits taken? How does that work? And, and what's the kind of size that makes sense?
1: Yeah, Well, for me specifically, or for our firm specifically, we do a lot of upfront works in order to make sure that we're walking with you to the point of clarity. So nothing that I'm going to do upfront is going to have any type of charge. Everything that we do is really to get you to the point to figure out if you have a credit, if you can use the credit, if you can't use it now, when can you use it? What makes sense in your scenario? And it's not until I have complete transparency on what are the credits? how you can use them, and then that actual dollar amount that I would even engage. And we work on a flat fee structure, but it really is based on a percentage of those credits identified. And then from a credit standpoint, from that perspective, there really isn't a downside because you're never going to pay more than the credits. It's just more of a, you know what makes sense. This has been
0: absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your expertise. It's nice to have a true professional who knows ins and outs of all of this complicated, but very important topic. And Tiffany, where can people get in touch with you or your firm if they would like to?
1: So I have a long name, but you can send flares in any direction. So (laughs) uh, asinaconsulting.com is our primary website. My contact information is on there. I'm also available through LinkedIn. I think I am the only Tiffany Bisconner that I know of. So it should be an easy search. And then again, feel free to reach out via email, via phone. And wherever
0: you're consuming this conversation, if you're listening or watching, we will have show notes nearby so that you can get Tiffany's contact information. Her last name is Bisconner, B-I-S-C-O-N-E-R. Tiffany, thank you so much. This has been amazing and we really appreciate your time.
1: I appreciate you all, thank you so much.